guardian angels and patron saints. Pray for us. There's a lot to talk about today, so I'm going to dive in straight away and see how much ground we can cover. Gospel reading today speaks about the urgency of bearing fruit. Jesus tells this parable of a fig tree, which the gardener regards as a waste of the soil, as a waste of the space that's been entrusted to it. It's not bearing the fruit that it was planted to give. And this this person uh, who comes on the scene intercedes on behalf of that tree to say, well, let me take a moment, let me take a little time. Maybe there's something wrong. Maybe there's something lacking that it needs. Let's see if the efforts that I make in, in behalf, on behalf of this tree will help it produce the fruit that it's, it's there to produce. And if not, then we'll leave it be. And you can do as, with it as you will. Jesus here is clearly using this parable to convey the urgency of his vineyard having to produce fruit, right? His cultivation of the covenant people of Israel that at last need to take their place as the firstborn children, the light, the salt that is meant to bring all of humanity into communion with God. It's time, Jesus is saying. And we, 2,000 years later, should perhaps be scratching our heads and say, well, we're not there yet. Is it time to cut down the tree? Because as we look around in the world, we see many examples, many instances in which the tree is not producing its fruit. So we have to take seriously the the missionary call. Lent is a time of purification, of mortification, of preparation. But really what that, what that is meaning is that God is once again expecting of his church fruit to bear witness to him, to draw others into faith and communion with him, that they too may know the one true God and his son Jesus who was sent to bear witness to him. Recently I've been reading this book by Dietrich von Hildebrand. It's called The Trojan Horse in the City of God. The reference there is, of course, to the myth of the Trojan War, about how the Greeks finally were able to enter and destroy the city of Troy after besieging it for 10 years. They hid themselves inside that wooden horse, presented it as a gift, drew it in, and then snuck out in the middle of the night, opened the gates of the city, and they sacked it and destroyed it. A little piece of cleverness. But that reference of a Trojan horse refers to uh, anything that comes to us presented as a, as a blessing, but in fact contains destruction. He wrote this book. He wrote this book in the 1970s. It was published in 1970. And he was very concerned. He was very concerned about the things that had been brought into the church that presented themselves as a blessing, but that in fact contained within them the seeds of the church's destruction. So he wrote this book to try to articulate that. Now, Dietrich von Hildebrand, he lived in the early part of the 20th century. He's a brilliant man. He he was one of the first people in Europe to publicly recognize and denounce the rise of Nazism and fascism in Germany. 
He's a very astute and perceptive person. He could read the, the trends. He could see beneath the surface of what was actually happening. And he was very concerned about what was happening in Germany in the 1920s and 30s. Eventually, he became such a public figure of resistance that he had to flee from his native Austria as they were invaded by the Nazis because he was, he, he had a target painted on his chest. Hitler wanted him dead. Wanted, knew him by name and wanted him dead. So von Hildebrand was a very astute reader of culture, of societal trends. And he was, in a sense, ringing the same kind of alarms that he was seeing in the situation in Germany in the 1920s and 30s. That's not to say what he saw in the church was a rise in Nazi uh, ideology. No, very different. What he saw was something that was going to prevent the production of the fruit that the Second Vatican Council was there to produce. He wrote this whole book about that, but I just want to point to one particular thing that actually relates to our first reading today. Our first reading today tells the story of Moses' encounter with the one true God of Israel who reveals his name from the burning bush. Now, if any of you follow the teaching of Bishop Barron, you'll have come across this idea that he was the first person to bring it to me. It's, um, his explanation of what's actually happening in the story of the burning bush is, is extremely important and, and quite powerful. We think about what, what it is that, a, that a revealing a name means. When we say someone's name, we have a kind of power over them, don't we? If I were to say your name in the middle of a homily, you'd snap out of the sort of nap that you're taking, <laughs> that I, that I uh, induced in you. And you, you would immediately be awake. I'd have a kind of power over you. I could just say your name and snap out of whatever was happening, right? It gives me a power if I know your name. If I just say, hey, you, continue your nap. So when God reveals his name, or when Moses asks for this, the name of this God in the, in the burning bush, it's a kind of a complicated question, because in a sense, what he's asking is, how can I have some power over you? God's answer is very interesting. What Moses is expecting is something that will allow him to categorize God. Oh, now I know what you are. When the Israelites ask me, who has sent you? What name shall I give them? He's asking, well, where are you from? What are your credentials? And God's answer is a non-answer. His name is the refusal of a name. When God says, I am who am, he's refusing Moses' question in the answering of it. I'm not the God of this or that people. I'm not the God of this or that country or territory. I'm not the God of this or that particular group that identifies with this club that I've founded. I'm the God of everyone, of everything. I am the one true God, the universal God, who has no borders, 
who has no limitations, who has no country. That's a powerful thing because what we're seeing now in the story of salvation history is God's revelation of, I'm not, I'm not just the God of this particular people, Israel, but I am the God of everyone. Most importantly, I'm also the God of Pharaoh, of the Egyptians, even though they don't worship me or acknowledge me, I'm still their creator and Lord. And you're about to see just how true that is. As it applies to us, here's the key. And if there's one phrase I want you to take away from this homily today, it's this. Catholicism is for everyone. Catholicism is for everyone. The church's doctrine and teaching, her moral life, her sacraments, it's not just for us who happen to be born and raised or who came into contact and maybe by accident or by providence find ourselves as part of this church. The nature of our faith demands that we acknowledge Catholicism is for everyone. Now, in the past, there have been ways in which that truth has been misused to coerce people, to coerce people by force into becoming Catholic. You can understand the reasoning. Well, if Catholicism, if, if this is for everyone, someone who's not or refuses to believe would be better off if they did. So by hook or by crook, we're going to get them there. By law, by occupation, by manipulation. Whatever the case may be, that is not the truth of what we believe in Christ. From the book. It is, an, it is a human temptation continually arising in history to try to, to try to draw other persons into the church by force, if this is not possible by other means. But every coercion in this area is not only an infringement on the most elementary of human rights, namely our freedom to believe and assent to the truth, but the use of force and pressure, successful as it might be, can never lead to true conversion. The apostles never used force or pressure in their mission. That's not just an accident of the fact that they were not in positions of power. It's core to the nature of the proclamation. Because what we're inviting people into, what we're preaching as Catholics, what we're bearing witness to, isn't membership in a group, but transformation in Christ. It can't happen any other way than from the heart. Unfortunately, von Hildebrand goes on. Unfortunately, when we condemn condemnation, or excuse me, when we condemn coercion, it is being interpreted as an invitation to cease to burn for the conversion of non-Catholics. They believe 
persons who see the emphasis on not coercing anyone, they believe that we should approach non-Catholics without working or even hoping for their conversion. They've forgotten that every Catholic who really believes that the divine revelation of Christ has been entrusted to the church cannot but see in every non-Catholic a catechumen in hope. Do we see our non-Catholic brothers and sisters, our non-Christian brothers and sisters in this way, a catechumen in hope, a future baptized Catholic? Dietrich von Hildebrand goes on. The negative element that was on occasion attached to a great mission of the church has led many Catholics to throw out the mission itself. And what happens as a result? I'm going to read another excerpt here. Without this belief in the potential transformation of everyone in Christ... This is a process that implies orienting one's entire life around him and bearing witness to him in our contact with the world. Many Catholics, having accepted the Catholic faith as a kind of heritage similar to their nationality, are completely lost and helpless when confronted with atheists. They yield or at least remain silent when atheists say something incompatible with Christian faith or that betrays an ignorance of the church. They are silent because they consider Catholicism to be something only for Catholics, for those who belong to it, as they belong to a family or to a country. It therefore does not apply to outsiders. Let's imagine a scenario. You, having come to faith in Christ and living that out in the family of God, which is the Catholic Church, approach a coworker or a neighbor and invite them to come to some kind of religious event. Say, say, a, a, say RCIA or a scripture study, a Thursday night scripture study that's being hosted at the church. And you... Your neighbor, co-worker, politely listens and then shrugs at the end and says, you know, I'm not really a church person, but thank you. I appreciate the, the invitation. I'll pass. You should be insulted by that answer. It would be reasonable to be offended by that answer because what is it saying? That answer is, you're only going because you're a church person. You're only at Mass because this is your thing. It's not my thing. I have no objection to it being your thing. I think people should be able to go to church whenever they want. I just don't want to. It's not my thing. I'm not a church guy. I'm not a church lady. What's that saying? Well, that's like saying, well, I'm not Italian. I don't like Italian food. Or I'm not really a fan of football. I don't really care. I'm a baseball guy. <sighs> no. That's not why we're here. And if it is why we're here, then we need to confront the fact that God is inviting us into a total transformation of our lives. 
a reconfiguration of everything that we're about. Where the old me dies and the new me comes alive in Christ. I never get tired of reminding parents at baptism preparation of this, as there are especially a lot of our families who have chunky babies, you know, that they're dandling there on their laps during the, during the class, listening to very little of what I have to say. By the way. This always gets their attention. Baptism is the submersion of a person underwater in a river until they drown. So spiritually speaking, what I'm doing when I baptize your child, they always pay very close attention to this, is I'm, I'm going to hold that child under the water until it stops thrashing. Not a pleasant image. But then as we bring that child out of the waters of baptism, he or she is alive in Jesus. A new life, a rebirth has happened. Now, communicating that reality to your neighbor or your coworker who isn't a church guy, that's complicated. I get that. It's not a, it's not a very a, a simple line from one to the other. Well, you realize, as you respond to his refusal of your invitation, you realize this is the key to all meaning, knowing God, the whole history of the universe, and what's most important, yourself. Okay. <laughs> thanks. But no thanks. Right? It's hard not to come across as a little crazy. But that, sh- that sense of reluctance to come across as a little crazy is perhaps the, the, the knocking of the Holy Spirit on our hearts to say, well, why not? What would I lose? Falling short of that, the alternative is making a kind of ghetto out of this church, this all-embracing church, which addresses herself to every human being with the good tidings of the gospel. So transformation in Christ, that's, that's the goal. That's Moses being addressed from a burning bush that is on fire without being consumed, a mystery a bizarre wonder, a miraculous happening that he can't understand or explain. That same reality is what we're invited into as Catholic Christians. And that is the, that is the same reality that every human being is invited to, into. Catholicism isn't just for Catholics. Christianity isn't just for Christians. It's for everyone. This next weekend, we've been talking and publishing information about our our called and gifted workshop. Now, this is something that if I could, if I had my, my preferences, I would say this is for everybody. It's being hosted and sponsored by our school, but really it's meant to be a time for everyone in our community, whether they're part of this parish or from elsewhere, to come together and start to discover how is it that I'm being invited into a deeper transformation in Christ. That process is never ending. That process can always be intensified. In fact, this process is addressed to those who have been living as Catholic Christians for some time but are looking and searching for fresh eyes. 
Where might I be called to deepen my fidelity to this truth? Where might I be called to continue my conversion as imperfect as I am? And in fact, discover how it is that God has entrusted certain gifts to me that he's entrusted to no one else to place them at the service of his kingdom and of his mission that they might bear fruit. I invite you next Saturday. This isn't the answer to everything, but it's, a, it's an opportunity. It's a starting point. It's the launching pad for a process that may, in fact, open up new horizons of beauty and conversion and meaning in your life and in the lives of those entrusted to you. So I, I ask, if at all possible, make the time next Saturday, March 26th, starting at 9.30 in the morning at the location where we've published in the bulletin for the last six weeks. We have sign-up sheets in the back of church today. If you'd like to enroll and show up, there's no cost. We even feed you lunch. In the end, what it is that we're, what we're doing, what it is that we're about, what it is that we're receiving here as Catholic Christians, let's never forget Let's never forget that this isn't just something that we associate with by chance. Being Catholic isn't just something that I do because that's the way I was raised or that's the most convenient community for me to worship in, the most familiar to me, the one that lines up with my preferences. No, it's the burning bush of truth that calls to us by name as it called to Moses. What I see as the beauty of this message is that it, it changes the attitude that we have about our relationship to the truth. It's easy to, and I would say reasonable, to not feel like we want to put ourselves in a position of saying to others, I have the truth and I want to give it to you. You should believe the truth that I believe, that I've come to know. That's a difficult thing to pull off in our culture today, isn't it? It's a difficult thing to convey to someone that, actually, no, this isn't my thing, but it's a liberating, beautiful way of life. That it, It's not something that I discovered. It's not something that I went and searched for. It found me. I didn't find the truth. The truth came in search of me. I don't claim the truth as my own. The truth has claimed me. His name is Jesus, and he lives. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.